Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences and the walls of organized religion and the institutional church. This is episode number 18 of our podcast, and today I want to do something just a little bit different. I want to share a story with you, and it's a story that's actually adapted from a sermon that I've given a couple of times. Um, And I want to invite you to consider how this particular story might be reflected in where we find ourselves today as we face sort of the continuing social pressures of a global pandemic and the resurgent movements for racial justice that we're seeing um, in our society today. So, So this story comes from a book in the Bible called 2 Samuel, and the name of the story is called A Dancing King, An Angry Queen, and Free Cake for Everyone. The text tells us that that David was dressed in an ephod, which essentially means he was basically dancing publicly in his underwear. So there's this story in the Bible about this guy named David. And David had really, really humble beginnings, working on the family farm, herding sheep, youngest of seven brothers, living in this kind of backwater little town in the hill country of Palestine. And eventually, through a series of really fairly crazy events, including one that you may have heard of, where David supposedly kills this really big warrior with a slingshot and some rocks, David becomes the king of the early nation of Israel. And so David is sort of the quintessential epic hero, right? He's Odysseus, Beowulf, Frodo Baggins, and Luke Skywalker all rolled up into one. Most of us, I suspect, even those of us who don't come from a a Judeo-Christian background, are probably at least somewhat familiar with that David and Goliath legend. It's sort of the archetypical triumphant underdog story, right? But that's not even the most important highlight of David's whole story. And to be honest, actually, the end of David's story is is much less heroic, or at least not heroic in the same way we might expect of a boy who slayed a giant, right? But there's this one particular part of David's story that doesn't get told a whole lot, and and it's a story I want to talk about today because I think it gives us some insight into where we find ourselves as a society today and where we might find some hope for a better future. So David's story begins in the Bible in this book called 1 Samuel. There's, there's a 1 Samuel and a 2 Samuel. And, and I, I want to give us a little backstory because I think that helps flesh this whole thing out. So before the story of David actually begins, there's there's this um, there's this narrative in First Samuel about how the Hebrew people of the time, who were at, really at that time they were still more of kind of a loose federation of tribes than a, you know a really organized nation, and and at one point they they start to petition God, and they they petition God through this prophet named Samuel. And what they're asking God to do through their petitions to Samuel is to give them a king. And the reason that they want a king is that they live in a world where other nations seem to have more 
power and more influence and maybe more privilege in the world than they do. And, and they begin to notice that the one thing that all of those other nations have in common is that they all have kings. Now, up to this point, this sort of loose federation of tribes has been led for a while by a series of people who were called judges, right? Now, the, the judges were really more, we might think of them more along the lines of like military warlords than what we think of as like judicial leaders today. Even though they did, that was kind of part of their job, right? They did have to sort of settle conflicts in the community. But then this guy Samuel comes on the scene, like, and he's he's the last of this series of judges in in Israel's history. And and like some of the other judges that had come before him, Samuel kind of filled this dual role, right? Where he was both the judge, like like the the military warlord who settled disputes, but he also served this role as what they called a prophet, right? And in, in that time in Israelite history, the prophet was sort of the person who spoke to the people on behalf of God, right? So he speaks for God among the people. And so in in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel and they start complaining that they really don't want to live the way they've been living anymore, that that's not really working for them, and that they want kind of the, the power and influence and privilege that they think comes with having a king. And so the text gives us this this really kind of fascinating dialogue um, between God and Samuel, right? Where Samuel is kind of feeling rejected by the people, but God insists that it's that it's not Samuel that the people are rejecting, that it's actually God that the people are rejecting because Israel is supposed to already have a king, right? Israel is supposed to be allowing themselves to be led by God rather than by, you know, some human ruler. And so in the course of this dialogue, you know, that that supposedly happens between God and Samuel, God essentially says to Samuel, you know, okay, just give them what they want. That's fine. Let them have a king. Let's just see how that goes, right? Let's let's see how that works out for them. And and so God gives Samuel all these warnings about like, you know, they think it's going to be this, but it's really going to be that. And, you know, they think they're going to have all of this freedom and power and privilege, but they're really going to end up enslaved to their own king, right? And and paying taxes and giving away all their goods and property. But, you know, they want a king, let them have a king, right? So God instructs Samuel to appoint this guy named Saul, which if you're familiar with the New Testament, there's a man named Saul there that later becomes known as uh, Paul, who was uh, one of the apostles who who writes several books of the New Testament. This Saul in in the Samuel story is not the same Saul that that we eventually come to know as as the apostle Paul. So this guy named Saul is instructed. Um, God instructs Samuel to make this guy Saul the first king of Israel, right? And and at first, you know, there's there's this whole story around how Saul becomes king, but but at first Saul does a pretty fair job, right? He's he's pretty devoted to God. He's trying to do what he thinks God wants him to do, right? But before long, the, you know, what we might imagine, the the trappings and the rewards of of privilege and power start to take hold with King Saul, right? And and so Saul becomes very corrupted by by the power of the kingship. And then 
you know, there, there's a lot of things that happen. There's this really kind of fascinating series of events um, that, that eventually kind of culminate with God sending Samuel to, to this little backwater town called Bethlehem to, um, to find this shepherd boy named David, who he will anoint as the future king, right? So David doesn't become king right away, but Samuel kind of goes and says, when Saul's gig is over, you are the man, right? You are going to become the king. And so eventually this whole like story plays out. And again, it would make like this epic Hollywood movie. There's lots of twists and turns to the plot that we just don't have time to get into here. Um, but, but I give you all of that as sort of this kind of really basic backstory to get to the part of the story that I really want to focus on, right? Because I think it's really important to understand this backdrop to understand what happens when David begins to consolidate power in the city of Jerusalem, when David becomes the king. So so we come to this point in the story, right, where Saul is dead, David has become the king, David is married to Saul's daughter, Michael, right? And and I'm going to get to that in, in a second. But the first thing that David wants to do as he begins to set up Jerusalem as the new capital city of of what is now being consolidated from this loose federation of tribes into the real nation of Israel, right? The first thing David wants to do is to get this thing called the Ark of the Covenant into the city. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is this holy relic that was part of this thing they called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this um, this sort of portable tent structure that served as the center of worship for the Hebrew people that Moses had had the people build during this event that we call the Exodus, when Moses was said to have led the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness of Sinai and into what would eventually become their homeland in Palestine, what they called the Promised Land. Now, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which was basically supposed to have been this sort of great big ornate wooden box covered in gold and various, you know, decorations and stuff. The Ark was said to have held the remnants of the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, as well as some other items that the people believed that God had used to help them escape from Egypt. But the most important thing about the Ark was that the people believed that that the Ark was the sort of dwelling place of God's essence, right? That Not that God was necessarily contained in that box, but that God was always present to them through the Ark of the Covenant. It was the center of Israelite worship. And it had been stored away during the years of war that had kind of led up to this point. Um, But now David wanted it to be in his new capital city. So he goes and he retrieves the ark and he brings it into the city. And because David and all of Israel believed that God had orchestrated everything that had led to this moment, right, they, they wanted God to be in their midst as they built their new kingdom. So the ark is being carried into the city and and David, you know, the new king is, man, he is partying like it's 1999, right? There is music, there's dancing, there, there's this extravagant picture of 
worship, right? And the way that David does this is really significant. The text tells us that that David was dressed in an ephod, which essentially means he was basically dancing publicly in his underwear, right? And, and the reason this is important is because what David is doing is symbolically becoming one with the people, right? In other words, for, for at least this moment, David sets aside his privilege as the king, right? And, and his worship is not He's not leading the people in worship so much as he is worshiping with the people. It's this act of community, right? It's this act of purpose. It's this act of solidarity, right? Of of oneness, of unity. It's this moment when kind of the walls of classism were, at least for a moment, broken down and all of the people were sort of on this same level playing field. And all of this scene really, really, really ticks off David's wife, Michael, right? Because Michael is viewing the story through a different lens. Now, remember, Michael is King Saul's daughter. Michael had been given in marriage to David, more or less to try to buy off David's loyalty during this period of time when when Saul was kind of trying to destroy David and David kept winning these battles, right? So so Michael has a certain viewpoint, though, because she was the king's daughter. She has this certain perspective of what it means to be the queen, to be a ruler, to be superior to everyone else by virtue of her position, right? By, by virtue of her position as part of the royal family. So here's the thing. For David, the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem reveals God's purpose for the nation of Israel. David, at least at this point, understands himself to have, I guess, a calling, if you will, a vocation, right? And that that calling or vocation is centered around uniting Israel to live out God's original intent for Israel, to be a people that are called out by God and for God, to reveal God's love, to reveal what we would call God's loving kindness. There's this Hebrew word hesed, right? Hesed means loving kindness, right? And so David understands that it's his vocation to help the nation of Israel live into its vocation to demonstrate God's hesed love, God's loving kindness to the rest of the world. So there's this sense of purpose right behind behind the way that David views this whole scene. But for Michael, this, this is a scene not of purpose, but of privilege. Michael believes that God chose first her father Saul and then her husband David to rule over Israel and for Israel to rule over the world, right? Do you see the competing narrative here? What Michael is interested in is not the purpose of Israel, the vocation of Israel, Micah is interested in power, in influence, in in who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't, right? Who has privilege and who does not. And and the writer of the the, the books of first and second Samuel expresses this dichotomy between what I would call between purpose and privilege really in this really interesting way. The text tells us 
As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Isn't that the way people of privilege always react? It's as if when someone sees the real purpose behind something, the people of privilege get angry and defensive. Because privilege is always threatened when people find their true purpose. But it gets better, right? Because after the ark is brought into the city and David makes, you know, he dances and and there's this big party and David makes all of the appropriate sacrifices. The next thing the text says is that David gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. So free cake for everyone, right? David's response to what he perceives as God's blessing on him and his nation is to break down the walls of separation between rich and poor, between advantaged and disadvantaged, between master and slave, employer or employee, however you want to look at that, between who's in and who's out. David's response is to make sure everyone gets fed. Do you see what's happening here? It's this glimpse into what God's intent for the nation of Israel was always supposed to be. Everyone together, unified by this sense of common purpose. But it's also a glimpse into the darkness of the human heart when things like privilege and power and wealth and influence get in the way. And I wonder if we're not experiencing some of that today in our heightened awareness around how our systems in society treat people from marginalized communities. I wonder if more and more of us, especially in the white Christian community, aren't beginning to recognize the ways that we have been like Michael, right? Expecting the system to work to our advantage with little regard to the people that it disadvantages. Just look at how many people still, especially, honestly, among white evangelicals, still seem to despise what is happening as oppressed people begin to rise up to demand their fair share of the advantages of a society that is supposed to be offering equality and fairness to everyone, right? The the dog whistles to white supremacists, the defense of Confederate heritage drenched in hate, the, the retort of all lives matter whenever someone dares to assert that black lives matter, it's, it's all the reaction of Michael, isn't it? Now, I have to admit, I'm drawing some really, really loose comparisons here, and I don't want you to think that this is what the whole story of David is really about. As I said earlier, David's story is very complicated, very nuanced, and it, and it takes some pretty dark turns. And frankly, it doesn't really end all that well. And I'm sure that the writer or writers of First and Second Samuel were not thinking of 21st century America when they compiled this particular narrative. But I do think sometimes the Bible can give us these little insights 
into the way things are really meant to be, even if they only last for a moment. And if we're paying attention, it can give us some insights into our own hearts. We have to be honest about where we locate ourselves within these kinds of stories. As I read in a couple of um, articles the last few days, um, we often tend to have what some writers I've seen have called a Disney princess approach to the Bible, right? Where we, where we always assume ourselves to be the heroes or the heroines of the stories, especially if we come from the dominant cultures that have had the privilege of normalizing our experiences to the biblical text. So are we the dancing king? paying no heed to the established social order? Are we the angry queen, seething at our loss of power and influence? Or are we just the common folks in the crowd, just asking someone to give us a piece of the cake? If we're honest about where we locate ourselves in this story, we might begin to ask the hard questions and start doing the hard work that might just lead to a better story for all of us. So that's it for this episode, episode number 18 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I hope that somehow this little kind of mini sermon has connected with you in some way and and maybe given you some food for thought as we continue to navigate the times that we find ourselves in. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com and across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook page and our Twitter and Instagram pages. Uh, That's where you can get up-to-the-minute announcements and updates of anything that's going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com, where I write a blog every week about these kind of issues of faith outside the fences. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at joewebwrites. If you have any suggestions or ideas for topics that you might like to hear a podcast about uh, sometime in the future, I would love to hear from you. You can, again, contact us directly on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I would love for you to give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. That's one great way to help other people find our community and to connect and participate in the conversations that we're having here. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through the Patreon platform where your support helps us offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn more. So keep on growing outside the fences and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.